JV to the Pros, Season 2, Episode 36. I'm Jack Vecchio with my partner, the Iron Man of Broadcasting, Corey, the Iron Man, Ramsey. How are you, Corey? I'm doing good now that I found my uh, CBD oil. It had been missing for a little while, and I tore the house apart until I found that little vial, I tell you. That's but I've got it. It's gold. It's gold. See, I'm holding it up. You can't see it, people that are listening. You can't see it, but I've got it right here in my but hand. The people that are listening, need, they need to go to rvdcbd.com and get that stuff. It is magic for sore backs, That's joints, cool. knees. Just, it works great. Now, um, we've also got the last man standing with us, our technical genius, Mr. Paco. How are you doing, ladies and gentlemen? This is Paco Silva, the last man standing, and uh, I am happy to say that I have just recently returned from Sin City, Las Vegas, Nevada, and I'm no, sure. No, let me ask you something. Was was it empty? Not at all. <laughs> no, I mean, what do you mean. So I stayed at Caesar's Palace, and I got there on Friday night, and I actually took. Uh, we stayed there an extra day, and I, I got back home the other. The, well, I told you in an email, but um, no, it was. It was it when it was like half capacity what it normally is, yeah. but uh, people were trying to keep their distancing. You know, everybody had a mask on. There were a couple jerks without masks, and we everybody kept their distance. But let me tell you something: I have seen I, this is twice. I've never seen this happen, but twice coming on the plane. I mean, to Vegas and then coming back, somebody threw up on the plane. Really? Yes. Both both ways. Yes way. Okay, so that tells you it's shower day. Absolutely. And it was just like, and it was just like, but of course, I don't want to say you smell Paco. No, 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 You're no, making no. people puke. No, but hey, no, but hey, but Vegas was awesome, man. I went to, I got, I went to uh, this new steakhouse at Flamingo, had an awesome uh, New York style 14 ounce. Nice. It was me. I served it. It was uh medium. So it was nice is and that, pink. Is that Smith? Is that uh, Smith and Walensky? No, it's uh Bugsy and Myers actually. Bugsy and Myers. Yeah. Bugsy and Myers. Well, okay. it's the flamingo, so it's fitting. You know what I mean? You can still see the whip marks on the horse when he, when he was racing yesterday. <laughs> well, you know, for the longest time, the lobby of the original flamingo was still in, in, in its original condition from when it first opened in the 40s. And I got to tell you, man, you, when we were talking about energies, you feel it there. Like, I, there was definitely some hauntings happening there over the years. But um, Well, hey, look, Paco, I mean, if you think about it, I mean, you were a you know, plump little baby. And you're still in original condition. <laughs> well, thank you very much, Jack. That's not nice. He's he's never nice. This thing about uh, a New Yorker's definition of nice is being a jerk to everybody equally. Um, well, I'll tell you what. Um, we have been dealing with the um, wildfires through Southern California. We've been dealing with... Um, um, We've been dealing with extreme heat. I mean, there's like a dozen areas of San Diego that has broken heat records. And I'm not talking like 99. I'm talking 112, 115. So it's been it's been insanity going on for the last week. I'm glad we finally got a break in it all. Hey, but, Jack. Uh, what have you been up to, Corey? Just working very, very hard and... Uh... You know, I can work out. I can run on the beach. You know, it's nice. I, I just put a little bit on my back. You know, I know people must think like I'm the spokesman for CBD, but I promise you I'm not. I just 
each time I put it on, I just can't believe how well it works. So yeah, it's it's you know, amazing stuff. I, it truly so really is. Seen, and you kind of are I, a spokesperson for it, since they're I one mean, of our sponsors. I, I mean, I'm saying just try it. So uh, you know, it's it, it's nice to run on the it's nice to run on the beach. You know, I'm going to tell you this: when you run on the beach, uh, make sure you have your sandals within uh, distance. So you don't have to like stay on the sand because I'll tell you I burnt my feet the other day. Oh, burn! I mean, oh. I'm talking scorched. It was like it was like running on an oven. So now, I learned now, now you get an idea of what like people don't realize like dog. I mean the pads of their feet burn. Yeah. On hot surfaces. Yeah, agreed. Yeah. Agreed. So now we've got a we've got a very special guest coming on today and, and I'm I'm excited. I think Corey's more excited and Paco's more excited than I am. But I'm I am thrilled that we're gonna have this guy back because he's he's quite a character. And um Corey, you want to introduce who we're bringing on and then we'll start chatting with our guest today. It's you know it's David Oman. Yes. And he's the author of you know the house on Cielo Drive and we're going to get him this time raw and unfiltered more so than we did last time. So, I mean, we're going to, we're going to have David here in the studio the entire time. So it's going to be great. I've been looking forward to it. It's taken a while to get him. He's a busy man, but we got him. Well, you, you did a good job. So we're on our way, man. This will be great. And he's going to be, he's going to be, we're gonna, not, not going to rein him in like last time. He's gonna go nuts this time, <clears throat> so we'll let him, we'll let him just break out of the gate, and we'll see how long we can handle this bucking bronco. <laughs> All right. All right, Paco, let's let's do it. Let's go get on with David, and let's go forward with the show. Copy that. So we have with us David Omen, the author Hello, David. of the Welcome the to author the show. of the book Welcome Last back. House to the show. The author of the book, Last House on Cielo Drive. Yes. Now, tell the, tell the listeners the significance of Cielo Drive. Well, the significance of Cielo Drive is the fact that it's right down the street from where Sharon Tate's home once stood, which you guys might be familiar with from the movie Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Now, is that is that movie out? As it, as no, that movie came out about a year ago. <laughs> my God. Yeah, pull it, what are you trying to pull my legs like a frog? Come on. <laughs> my God. What are you trying to do? Choke me? No, it actually was Corey's <laughs> favorite movie of last year. <laughs> oh. Yes. Yes, it was. Yes, well, it I, was. I, I have some great stories about that movie and meeting Quentin and the lead up to the actual production when he was actually here. It's it's a couple of funny anecdotal stories that I think, I really think, Jack, you'll crack up at. It. Being in New York, you go, oh, why, 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 why else, what else would you do? You know, you kidding me? Of course you'd do this. You would just say, no kidding. Everybody else goes, oh my God, you did that? And it's like, what else am I gonna do? Bow down and kiss the, the, the ground in front of him? My God. So. Wait, wait, what, what did you do to Quentin? Because oh, I'll tell you oh, what, oh, I'll tell you what, I got to know this. Wow. You got to hear this. I have shared some stories of quote unquote stupid things I've done with producers and directors 
that my wife thinks may have gotten me blacklisted. Wait, hold on. Tell me what you did. All right, all right, let me give you the story. This is, this is the story. This is the abridged story from when it began to when it ended. This is and this is this is over a course of about a one year period, even yeah. a little more. Um, March of 2018, I get a letter in the mail, you know, from Quentin Tarantino Productions, blah blah blah, not whatever the name of the production company was, on letterhead saying they're going to be coming up here in September of 2019 to shoot. The movie. No, it's 2018. You're going to be here in 2018 shooting the movie. And I'm like, oh, my God. I said, this is an opportunity. I said, I know they're going to shoot up here. And I said, I'm sure going to get myself connected to Quentin. So I got the letter and I called them up. Couldn't get through. The telephone line was busy, you know, for the next couple. Of, so I sent them a letter and I said, dear Quentin, I said, look, I said, I'm sure you're going to want to use a couple of houses up here as green rooms because, the, you know, Etc. Etc. I said, get in touch with me. I'll be happy to rent my house out and the house next door because my neighbor's out. Blah blah blah. No word back. A couple months later, I decide to go to his offices and drop off a letter. After I've called the offices and I talked, try to get to get somebody saying, look, I live up here. I said, be happy to work with you guys. I know you're going to want to use a couple of the houses to to put the actors, the crew, because it's easier than bringing trailers up here. Boy, you were persistent. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, obviously. I, read. I, I, New Yorker, what do you want? You give me any. <laughs> give me a break. I love it. Jesus Christ. What a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to meet and work with Quentin. Oh, come on, you know. So yeah. I sit there, and I, I, send the, I go to the offices, and I drop the letter off at the offices, and I come back home. And this is what's funny. I'm in my house, and I'm like four houses down from Tate's, but I can see the bottom of the driveway from my balcony. And I go on the balcony and my I call my neighbor. I say, hey, what's going on at the bottom of the driveway? I see these two big people mover vans there and a bunch of people crowding about the bottom. So my neighbor says, oh, there's a bunch of people down there. They're doing a location scout. And it's like, really? I said, oh, BS on that. I drive my butt down the bottom of the driveway, just like in the movie, and I pull it up to the side of the mountain right near the entrance. I park my car up the side of the mountain. I walk down the driveway. I turn to my left. As I'm turning to my left, I see this gackle of people, like like 30 people all like in a, in a group. And I see the two people movers. And as I'm turning to my left and I'm seeing the people there, I turn to my left. Right there, five feet in, right to the left of me is Quentin, the first assistant, the first direct, the director, and the first AD. And I like it. And I said, oh, say Quentin. And you hear this big gasp from the cluster of idiots over on the other side going, <gasps> and I'm like, I said, Quinn, I mean, I recognize, what am I going to say? It's like, oh, Mr. Tarantino, oh my God, let me bow down. It's like, no, he's a man. He's a he's a director. What the hell? You know, if you're not in the business, you could be all odd because I'm a freaking producer. <laughs> I, I work with these kind of people all the time. So it's like, Quentin, right, fine, big deal. So I just coolly turned to my mother and said, cool as a cucumber, my son. Good boy. Didn't get all flipped out that he's Quentin Tarantino. It's like, no. As she used to say, I worked for John Garfield, the producer, for the last two years of his life till he died of a heart attack as his personal assistant with his wife and in tow. She said, I knew that family back, like the back of my hand. I said, John was a great guy. He goes, but I never treated him any differently than any other bum on the street because at the end of the day, they all put their pants on, 
one leg at a time. Doesn't matter what the hell they're made of, everybody is the same and the in the essence of what they do makes no better them or you because what their position or what their job or occupation is, that doesn't matter. Royalty aside, that, that's another story. She goes, that's a that's a that's a, a a horse of another feather that she would sit there and like she goes, them you really don't put on a pedestal. You treat them with respect, but you don't go over the top and kiss their ass. You, you know, I don't. You know, I don't agree with that as being an actor. I believe we should be treated much better. <laughs> Not happening, Jack. Yeah, whatever, nope. Joey. Who asked you? Yeah. When you Jack. get the Academy Award for something, then you can go blow your horn. Otherwise, Joey, come on, put for your feet on the ground, both of them. You're not holding helium balloons. <laughs> you like that, Jack? I do That's like that. That's not a New Yorker I remember as a kid. Music in New York was like, there's no BS in New York. You just straight shoot. That's it. I'm not going to stab you in the back. If I don't like you, I'll tell you to your face. And then make you not to be friends. It's interesting you say that because celebrities in New York literally take the subway to sets, whereas they can't, they can't travel that way in LA because they'll get mobbed. But in New York, nobody really cares if you're Steve Martin or they don't care. Right. In LA, it's really a big deal. It is. And it's I have a New York mentality. Everybody says, you're like a New Yorker. And it's like, no, I just don't like a lot of BS and unnecessariness because I grew up in the in the entertainment industry as a kid. I mean, the only person I ever treated really exceptionally, really outland just like this was when I met Jimmy Stewart. I met him at the 1984, 1984 Olympic Gala. And I was, myself, that's right, David was the, um, I was the attache to uh, Peggy Fleming from the 1966 Olympics. You remember her from the Winter Olympics, she, Peggy Fleming. So I ended up getting, I said, I said, Peggy, I said, do you mind? I said, I've got to say two words to, to, to Jimmy Stewart, I said, he is my, I said, I find him one of the all-time greatest, you know, my favorite actors. And I went up to, I said, Mr. Stewart, I said, I know I'm breaking protocol. I hope you don't mind. I said, against ABC rules, I said, I just had to tell you how much I appreciated your work and it's a wonderful life. Now, mind you, in 1984, It's a Wonderful Life was still nothing. Had not occurred till some years later. That's this was time 36 years ago in 1984. It was still an obscure thing. The only reason I knew it is because in 1982 in college in my at USC, we watched this in film school in the, in the uh, film class. One of them was reviewing a great American motion pictures. And again, we watched It's a Wonderful Life in the 65 or 120 foot screen in the cinema room there in the theater at USC. I said, I have to tell you that thank you for your performance and thank you for doing that role. It was incredible. It really impacted my life. And he looked at me and he got a little teary eyed and he goes, Thank you. The freaking blue. It was amazing. Now yeah. now now we you and I are now connected forever. Let me tell you why. Nineteen eighty four, I was about to say by complete fluke, I was with uh, I was with a writer a producer and a director, Sunset Strip, Sushi, 1984, and who's there? Stewart. And I thought, yeah, having sushi. And we all had sushi. Got home at like 2 in the morning, 
We were up at the Sunset Strip. I think I'm not going to say the name of the place. Say it. Doesn't say it. Just playing up there anymore. But say it. Come on. Jog my memory. Come on. Celebs go, but 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 sushi on Sunset. It's on Sunset, and it was it was it called sushi on Sunset. But but I'll tell you what. I must have eaten $160 worth of sushi. And I needed to stop it in and out on the way home. I was still <laughs> But I, but he is but the imperson the impersonation that David just did is not off at all because that's the way Jimmy sounds when oh, he no. wasn't doing very, very his, his I, image I, character. He I sounded just like that. Yes, very much yeah. so. Just I like didn't that. really stutter, but it, it was just because I was thinking of what I was trying to say before I said it. It wasn't a speech impediment. It was right. like I was thinking my thoughts before I would open my mouth to say them. <laughs> it's, it's, really, it's, it's hard to explain to people. I mean, when you look at the man who shot Liberty Valance, when I did that, it was I was talking very straight and clean. But nowadays, I think before I speak because it's measured thought that counts. Yeah. So the cadence, I, I, I the have cadence oh. and everything. You got it down. So I yeah. got to ask yeah. you, uh, no, yeah. David. Dana Carvey's impression of him in that SNL skit is it dead on or? Yeah, I'd love to meet Dana. I'd love to make Dana's acquaintance because I go back and forth with him on doing impersonations, and he goes, "You're not bad." I say, "I know." He goes, "I do Robin Williams very well too." But depends upon you say Robin was like, "Well, that's a good question. I don't know. I have to think about that." It's you're close. It's close. You know, it's, it's, it, well, it depends what you're doing. Are you doing Mork and Mindy? Are you doing Fisher King? Are you doing? You know, any number of you're gonna do Dead Poet Society. I mean, it's there's he and as he grew older, his his dramatic skills really, you know, you know, hit Came an full arc, circle. A just tremendous arc of of character that he was able to really utilize what he did as improv as a as a young man to then bring that to an adult as he grew up because he matured. He was amazing. Yeah. I mean, I cried my eyes out because I wanted to meet him so bad. He was among people. I mean, I met Damon Wayans at a club, and I did the same thing with Damon. After he, he appeared, you know, unbeknownst, he just came in and announced he was there. I walked up to him after the show, and I just said, by the way, I said, I, said, I want to say thank you for what you did in Living Color. And his jaw dropped, and he goes, oh, my God. I said, it was, I, said I remember with my girlfriend being watching at midnight, on, on Fox, watching you guys. I said, I've never laughed so hard in my life. And I said, you guys, and he, and it hit it again. The way I approach these people is with honesty and sincerity, and it hits home when they hear what I'm saying. If Damon, Damon says, he goes, those are the best years of my life working with my family. And, and it took him back there, and he just, boom. He was there, and he had done all these other movies and stuff. You know, he did that Sergeant Major, Major Dad or something. Major movie. Pain. Major pain that went to the TV show, so he knew other roles. But to go back to that place that he remembered, he was so fond of, was amazing. Because again, he just he just started talking to me, and we started hitting it, you know, talking and kicking, kicking this this this. I said, look, I said, go back to your friend. He goes, no, I believe. I said, I said, look, I said, if you're ever interested, here's my card. I said, you know, take care. I said, same thing when I met Dennis Rodman. I was at the Four Seasons about one in the morning. I was leaving there. I just met Johnny Depp over at the. Um, yeah we, yeah, we met Johnny Depp a couple an hour earlier at the uh, Mel's Diner at the Mel's Diner up on Sunset Boulevard. This was right after he's getting divorced before he got with, with Amber Heard. You know what? And, well, the you Amber know. thing is a whole other story. <laughs> About Amber Heard, yeah, this is before Amber Heard, and that all hit the fan. That went that way, but uh, uh, I, it, there, wow. I got it. 
he walks in the, in the Meltdown. I got my back. And I said, you know, I just heard the spirit say that I'm that Johnny Depp's gonna gonna walk in or something. And he goes, no, Johnny Depp just walked in, and my back's to the to the door, so I don't see anything. And in comes Johnny Depp. Around, he walks around the other side to the other table and sits down. And I'm like, oh my god, I said, it's a sign. I gotta gotta reach out to him. So I take one of my postcards. Where the hell is the postcard? Oh, it doesn't matter. We're on, we're on radio. I so get David, I got to tell you, I could listen to Hollywood stories all night, but I want to get back to. Ghost. All right, all right. I want to so get back to Quentin. So, so back to Quentin. So Quentin then says to me, I said to him, I said, so it's Quentin. I said, I'm David Oman. I said, I'm the crazy son of a bitch who's been sending you the letters about using my house. He goes, oh, nice to meet you. He goes, so you got gotten letters. I said, I said, you can tell us. I'm busy as hell. I said, look. I said, come up the driveway. You can come up because yes, as a guest, you don't have to worry about the neighbors pissing on you. I'll show you around the area. He goes, well, right now, he goes, I'm just here doing the scouting of where we're right now doing. We've got six other locations to do today. We have 20 tomorrow. But he goes, I'll come back. And I said, okay, thanks. I said, and then I said, I said by the way, I, I, I said, I said, I made a movie about the, about the Sharon Tate Murray's a fictionalized account called House at the End of the Drive. I mean, it's a movie. And his first day, this, the, the, the first assistant director says, oh, Really? I said, I said, like, like, what's on? I said, yes, yeah, I said, like, what's on? How's the end of the drive? I said, like, what's on? I said, yeah, like this. This is, this is the <laughs> So, so now fast forward a couple of months. I try to negotiate. They won't use my house as a green room because I have all the cameras through the house. And Quentin is like, oh, no effing way am I going to use that house for the two days we're going to be out there. With all those cameras, you got to be fucking kidding me. It's like, all right, I'm not going to do it. All right, fine. But I'll rent the house out next door to you. I said, that house was there during the murders. So what do they do? They use the house next door, which I'm renting out to them for my neighbor, as the house where the producers are. Meantime, I've got all this food stacked up that I bought here because I think they're going to be here. And I go next to her, I said, look, since you guys aren't going to be using my house, I have around $300 worth of food in my freezer and refrigerator. <laughs> and gonna, I said, I'm going to, said, I'm taking orders. And they go, what? I said, I'm taking orders. I said, what do you guys want? Take like the waiter. I come back with this huge tray and a platter and I got the platter here and I got the tray here and I'm like this. And I bring them all the food and they go, oh my God, that's incredible. I said, look, so I made friends with them. Later on that night, I'm walking down the driveway past the, the three house, past the second house, which is where the cul-de-sac is, where there happens to be, and you see it in the movie, I think, um, where they come up the driveway. It's past the first house was this. So you don't see the second house. There's this cul-de-sac. There's a cop there, and the cop says, oh, it's 10.15. We're going to lunch. Now, 10.15 at night, lunch meaning they're going for their dinner break. Now, I've heard Quentin and the other crew members say 10.30 is lunch. I've been invited to go up to, to lunch with them at this mansion around the corner where they're having their catered food, which we'll get to that after this. So I go around the corners, and I'm coming down the, the, the straightaway where the house is on, the, on the, the first house is there. They come up. The kids are walking up the driveway, and um, I see – the, the, I see Tex Watson, the guy, the kid, and the girl with the, the flaming red hair that was all like teased out. Right. And another and another girl. So as we're closing, as we're walking, as I'm walking down, they're walking up and we're closing. I'm like 10 feet away from them. I stopped and I said, oh, I said, you must be. And we're right in front of the neighbor's house. I said, you must be the killer kids that uh, the, that Quentin, that I said Q, because everybody's calling him Q. I said, the Q and the crew have been calling 
all, about talking about all night. And the, and Tex looks at me. I don't know the actor's name, but it's funny. We had this. It's a moment in time. He looks and goes, "Really?" He goes, "What gave it away?" And it was deadpan. I said, "Well, I said I don't know." I said, "There's uh, there's two girls and a guy. You're all dressed from head to toe in solid black." I said, "You happen to be walking up a famous driveway, or an infamous driveway, where 49 years ago." Um, Five people were brutally slaughtered. I said, I don't know. Call it a wild guess. And he and I looked at each other because we were both playing it off deadpan. He and I both looked and we just cracked up. And that was it. Boom. So I said, okay, that's it. And I said, that was hysterical. And he goes, you're pretty good. I said, well, thanks. I said, you're not bad yourself. And we cracked up. I said, look, I'm David Oman. I live four houses down from Sharon, where, where Sharon's house was. I said, I'll be happy to walk up the driveway and give you the 411 as we go up the driveway. From the bus, as, as, as I turn and start walking up the driveway, you hear from about 150 feet down, no! <laughs> it's Quentin. I'm like going, I like just froze in place going, oh, shit. I know that voice. I know who that is. That's Quentin. Oh, my God. And then I'm thinking to myself, and then he's running, walking up rapidly up the driveway, still yelling, saying, no, I want them to walk the walk by themselves. And at that moment, I go and I double freeze and I go, I know exactly what he's doing. Because when I made my movie 15 years ago, House at the End of the Drive, I did the same exact thing, except I had three girls and one guy playing the Manson Killers walking up the driveway, so we're at the bottom of the driveway during the shooting, during a break, I said, I want you guys to get into, really get into this character that you're playing. I said, I want you guys to walk from the bottom of the driveway all the way to Sharon's and all the way back down. I said, I want you to really feel the emotions, and I really want you to understand that you're not playing the characters because I've changed, i fictionalized who they are. I said, but directly you must understand that you represent four individuals that really existed and that what you're walking on isn't just a street, it's the street they walked upon. It's the actual location where this may mayhem went down. And I told my people that, I said, I want you guys to feel it. And we did it at night, around 11.30 at night when we were shooting. I said, I want you guys to really get into character. I want you to pick this up. And I want you to really feel this and carry this on to the next three weeks of shooting. I said, you guys, it's important that you understand who these people are and feel it and really get into it. I said, yeah, it, 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 as an actor, it must permeate your soul. Yeah, well, it's a method actor. Again, some people don't like it, but my mom was went to the Strasbourg School of Acting as a as a young lady, and you know she worked with uh, Lee Grant, was one of her friends back in in uh, in the time, and she said to me because it's good for them to get that understanding as an actor if you have the chance and it's the real so. I, so Quentin runs up and says, I want them to walk the walk. And it's like, and I'm thinking to myself, I said, I know exactly what you mean. I'm so sorry. But I didn't say it, just said I got. And then puts around my, my arm, the arm around the shoulder is the first AD saying, well, what's, I'm Richard. What's your name? And I'm going, oh, my God, I'm getting the talk. As a producer, the last thing you want to hear is the talk. Now, for those of you that don't understand what that means, yeah, if you're an actor or a producer, and you're working, and you're not, and you're they're shooting a motion picture in your area, and you're in some way you're not really involved with the production, but you're working with them, the last thing you want to get done is the talk. 
The talk is where you're getting basically browbeaten for something that you did that is taking the steam of the heat from the director. And that being the director of a $100 million motion picture has the stresses of about a billion pounds a square inch on his shoulders. So when people say, oh, he's difficult to work with, it's like, you put a $100 million budget on your shoulder and you figure that you have to perform at this level. When somebody blows it, you're going to beat the shit. You're going to beat the shy out of them to make sure that you don't have that kind of, you know what, hit you on the head because it's not going to be that person that's going to get kicked around. It's going to come back ultimately at you because if you're taking the big bucks to do the job, then you're going to take the big hits for the things that get screwed up. Well, on, on, a, on a set like that, it actually literally, people don't realize that if you're on the set for 14 hours in a day, it literally comes down to about three to $4,000 a minute. So oh, yeah. All day oh, every long for the whole time every you're on the set. So if you screw something up and it takes two minutes to reset, five minutes to do the lighting again, and then you got to wait for sound, and you got maybe planes passing overhead, you literally just spent twenty five thousand dollars because you blew a line. Well, and thank God. Yeah, and thank God it was rehearsal. It was just rehearsal, so you've just. That was it. And it was 15 minutes before lunch. So he was trying to squeeze it in to make use of that 15 minutes before lunch right. so that he could take it. Because you just said 15 minutes is about yeah. 50000 That's about $60,000. 60 grand. Fast money. So David, I wanted to ask you yeah. about your your interest in you know the Sharon Tate tragedy. Is it because you lived there? What sparked all this yeah. for you? What, what, uh, what, uh, what uh, I will, I will be 100% honest with you. The only reason why I lived in this house is because my dad found a classified ad, when, which was the way you found things 22 years ago in 1998, because the internet wasn't anything what it is now. Right. Um, there were such things as the Sunday classified, or Sunday LA Times Sunday classified edition. So Sunday morning, uh, late February, late November 1998, he calls me up at 8 in the morning and says, I found a lot. It's a foreclosure. It's $40,000. I'm going to just keep the abridged version, not with the whole details of what, how it all. But basically, that's how we got it. And he said, let's go see it. We looked at it. I said, oh, my God, that's where the Sharon Tate murders. He was like, I could give a rat's. That doesn't matter to me. Right. What do I Because we're here to look at a piece of real estate. This is present day. 35 years ago or 30 years ago, who cares? That's not even sure. there. So we found the lot. We bought the lot for forty grand. He designed the house four years later, just under four years later, from finding the lot. We, we I built and moved in on August thirtieth, uh, two thousand two. So, so literally, yeah, you lived there. And then, why don't you tell us what what did you start to experience after <laughs> now? What were some of the things that started to happen? Well, during construction, there was stuff happening. That's what people understand. It's like during construction, we you could feel energy that was just around the place, and it wasn't as noticeable. It wasn't like it was just like it was. It was more like specific energy. Like when we were walking around on the first level when we had that built, I'd walk around and I'd feel like somebody walking up behind me to tap me on the shoulder. And I'd say, "Yeah, no one there," and it happened a lot. Just that. <clears throat> uncanny sensation of like like just like somebody leering at you it's like yeah Jose what was that Hector yes yeah, I'm going there Not let me and let me jump in for a second yeah. you guys for uh Damon and cosine with what uh David is saying 
the whole reason why I reached out to David in the first place, because I was interested, drove up there and felt something. And then I started, and then I started Googling and then that's how I came across David's name. And I was like, when I reached out to you, David, I was actually there. convertible. I was there in my convertible. That's when I reached out to you just to let you know that. I'm as serious as can be. You so should have guessed. Yeah, I would have come out and said, "Okay, what's going on?" Yeah, I didn't want you to go with some crazy stalker. Well, I would have been like, "You want to see the house? Come on in." There's no COVID, obviously. It was pre-COVID, so you could have come in the freaking house. I would have been like, "Do you have a mask? Okay, check your temperature with the thermal cam. Okay, you're good." And everyone asked me. Everyone asked me, like, "What did you feel?" And I couldn't describe it. I don't know. And I said, "I just." felt something and the other thing is i felt compelled to play 60s music just to help things along and then i was like you know then i got out of my car and i'm walking around and then i got back in and then that's when i reached out to you now david um i wanted to brush up what Corey was saying about hauntings but uh prior to uh we uh to recording today you brought up that you're you know because you've been around the block with other paranormal investigators for example zach baggins and those other guys and I just want to ask you, are they up to snuff or they're all, it's all just an act? I got to know because, I mean, well, they probably told you I'm a huge Dan Aykroyd fan. And, you know, that guy's like 110% into, the, into that stuff. Oh, I'm trying. I just, as a matter of fact, I tried to reach out to Danny's, um, to his publicist yesterday, I mean, on last Friday or Thursday of last week, trying to get her to get in touch with Dan to see if she could get him to come up here to check out the house. Because oh. to me, he lives in the area. He lives probably about four miles from here right now. So it's like, no kidding. I met Dan at the, uh, what was the launch party for Skullhead, you know, crystal skull vodka. Great product. I'm uh, sorry. I love that stuff. So like I have, I have a bottle of it signed by Dan upstairs in the box. So, but I'd like to get Dan to come here to check out the house because his, he's really, his father was truly a parapsychologist back in the 60s and did investigate locations. And his brother, Peter Aykroyd, still does do paranormal investigations. And I'd love to talk to him because based on my book, Ghosts of Cielo Drive, I'd like to turn a make this into a six-part miniseries or docuseries about the hauntings, the history of the area, not just the Sharon Tate murders, the construction of the house, the whole nine yards of what's going on here. Because um, I sp- speaking of the other guys, I spoke to Nick Roth two weeks ago during my live paranormal Paracon event that we had here. Um, it was amazing. We spoke to him and Elizabeth Saint for two and a half hours. Now, David, did you ever meet the Warrens while they were still alive? Okay. No, yeah. The- let me because no. I was watching the show last night with my dad, and I re- I did some homework on them. Turns out that they were just bona fide con artists. But he was at it. Was like, yes. no, no, no. They're real. They're real. Look. And no, I was, and I not. and I watched. Frauds. I know they were frauds. Just watching it because, I mean, later on they later admitted. Yeah, uh, the reason why they came into for the viewers, the Warrens, uh, the Conjuring movie series from Warner and uh, Blumhouse Productions, they're based on the alleged, uh, you know, uh, uh, investigations done by the Warrens, which were well. David, you want to fill them in, please? I can't fill them in because I don't know the stories, and I know that the people that they were associated with, they also talked about the Amityville Horror. I'm working on that as well. But from what I understand is that they were proven to be frauds in the late 70s, and 
you know, years later, obviously, like 30 years later in 2008, Warner, Warner Brothers picked up the rights to some of their books because they were looking for something to develop as far as a series in the paranormal genre to compete with uh, the likes of, um, what was it, Paranormal Activity. Yeah, because that was, that was huge when it came out. Right, it was enormous. Are you kidding? That is the most successful independent production in movie-making history. They spent $15,000 making that movie, and it made a half a billion. <laughs> yeah, but you don't understand how that all happened. What happened was is they sold the rights for a million dollars. That's right. The people that made the movie got nothing of after the million dollars. They were bought out at a million. The, uh, the billions and millions that came past on all those in, endeavors that were the sequels and the sequels and the sequels, that whole franchise, those people got in bupkis. Zero zipping. Well, they didn't, get, they didn't get bupkis because well, they got a million dollars, but they took the payout. Yeah, but they got a million but, dollars, but they didn't get anything else. No, uh, no, David, I, I, see, I know where you're coming from because um, I correspond with one of the production designer for Blair Witch Project quite frequently. I met that's him. That's what it was. Blair Witch, I meant, right? Yeah, Ben that Rock. Was... That's his, that's the guy's name. Now right. this came up, and I took a business in in film and television class when I was back at school in film school. And I did my homework on Blair Witch. At the time, that was the most successful found footage film of all time. I mean, that blew the lids off. I mean, we could talk about Paranormal till the cows go home, but that really set the trend. But, That's why. Um, sorry, I got the two mixed up. Blair Witch was the one that that said it. Yeah. So then they decided to look for one. It was like, what we and found the warrants, even though they were proven to be BS. And people don't like that. If you do a scratch the search research, so you'll find out that they were totally bona fide rhythm. And that's why I have no respect for them. I've never thought anything of theirs was worth a thing. No, no, no. We got to, we got to, we got to get back to where Corey was talking about because Corey really found it fascinating. The, the energy, the, the weird haunts that have gone on. Listen, I know living in LA, you live in Cook City, so yeah. I know you probably come out of the woodwork. So I didn't want to be just some guy who drives up there to see Sharon Tate's old place, which isn't even there. It's then, not, exactly. Yeah, exactly. But I just wanted to feel. I wanted to feel the energy. David, how about some barbecue? Would you guys be up for barbecue as well? Yeah, We can zoom Paco and, and Robin and in as well, obviously. Yeah. David, so Corey and I went up to LA a couple months ago, and we went up to the Tate, Gate. the former Tate. Um, Are you coming the, too, Robin? Are you going to come with the 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 Tate House. I'll the tell Gate. you. The energy up there she is palpable. I mean, I just felt it in my heart and in my stomach. It was amazing. I just, it was so grief inducing. Because, see, I couldn't describe it. So I just said, you know what? I'm going to bring you up there because I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what I felt. I can't really put anything on it. And so, yes, I want to get to your house. Oh, and no, my we'll barbecue. Fine. Screw that. We'll barbecue. I'll, I'll throw out some bacon back ribs. Corey, I'll tell you who. Wet or dry? That's my question. Uh, wet, um, <laughs> wet, wet, so sit for about a half hour, forty-five minutes. That's all, and then I put them on the grill. Okay. Uh, we believe like, these are pretty damn good ribs. It's like I know. <laughs> yeah. He's asking about food. Big surprise. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, I'm talking about entertaining. I like I like to entertain. I, you know, I like to. Over and check out the house yeah. And go, yeah, he's definitely uh, in New York. Oh, what do people say to you after they've been to your house? Generally, what do you, what do they say to you? That's question number one. 
Well, first I want to finish, answer your first question, which was what do I, you know, what I consider myself since I don't consider myself a paranormal. I just, this is what I tell people. I happen to be the real deal. I'm a guy who lives in a house that I built. I've always have to be honest with you. I always wanted to live in a haunted house. Really. I kid you not. I kid you not. And I don't mean like I wanted to buy a house. I always wanted to build a house myself with my father because he was always building houses as a kid and was selling them. And he built my sister's house 30 some odd years ago, 30, about 34 years ago, he built my sister's house. And I said, I want to do the same thing. The house I grew up in, my dad had built right before I was born. The house was built and I moved right in with my family into the house that he finished building, which was right next door to the house that he lived in for sure. some 10 years earlier. But the Bel Air fire destroyed the house next door to him. And he bought that lot and built that house. And that's the house I grew up in up in Bel Air. Um, so I don't, again, believe in that. I believe in the paranormal, but I do not believe that are such that there are as many people out there that claim to be experts in the field as there are. And Agreed. most of those people are personalities more than they are mm -hmm. authentically, thoroughly involved and interested in the paranormal. Um, I met Dana Workman about eight years ago at the Las Vegas Paracon, and I said, oh, so you work with, uh, with Jack Osborne on Haunted Highway? And she goes, yeah. I said, so how do you like it? She goes, well, I said, what do you know about the, she goes, I don't know anything about the paranormal. I said, what? She goes, I'm, 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 I'm basically a model. I'm an actress. And goes, but I got hired because I'm a pretty face. And that's why they hired me. And I said, oh. And then I met uh, Jason Gates of The Haunted Collector. And he was telling me about his friend and partner in the show, John Zaffis. And I should meet him. I finally met him like last year. And Again, I said, you know, Jason has uh, told me about you several years ago. I heard you wanted to see the house. He was thoroughly uninterested. Hmm. And I was like, okay. I said, all right, nice meeting you. Goodbye. And it wasn't like there was a crowd of people. He was all by himself sitting, having some dinner. We were, he was talking to a friend of mine, and I got introduced to him, and he was totally unenthusiastic and couldn't care. I was like, okay. And then there are people like Zach Baggins, who's a personality who I've met several times now and worked with on two shows. And, you know, he's lambasted me and said that I'm a, that I'm possessed. What? And that I'm a poltergeist host and a poltergeist agent. And I said, you know, His funny agent's thing is. a poltergeist is, probably. <laughs> like, he's the one who's now possessed on every episode of his show for dramatic, dramatic purposes. But needless to say, I'm not any of those people. And I said this today to a person who I was talking to that's in a paranormal group. I don't belong to any single paranormal group for one simple reason. I don't believe in being involved in cliques. When I went to high school at Beverly Hills High, there were all these different groups of people. And because I came into the high school as a sophomore, not as a freshman, I basically was plopped in as somebody that was from a different area that didn't go to school there, that was from out of the area that moved in. And I wasn't even brought in through the freshman's process. I was a sophomore transfer. So I didn't get involved with any clicks then, and I realized I don't want to be in a bunch of, with a bunch of people that are having a verbal fight with other people because these other people are a different group of people. I don't want to be involved in a clique. Sure. What's the point? So I, by my own nature, as Groucho Marx famously said, I don't want to be a member of any club that will have me as a member. And by that it means I can be friends with everybody 
like I was in high school and not have to worry of the retaliations of this person and that person and my clique saying, you can't be friends with them. They're not part of our clique. And the same thing holds true for me now. I don't belong to any paranormal investigative teams because I found that most 99% of the places on the planet, including the ocean, are haunted. And people go, what do you mean? I mean that there are places that are more haunted than others. But generally speaking, wherever somebody has lived, played, loved, worked, fought, Maimed. any number of human endeavors, died, their spirits are going to be coming back there for any number of reasons, most of which have nothing to do with the speculative individuals of the paranormal expert field, uh, the paranormal, experts in the paranormal field lay claim to. I found that to be the most disconcerting part of the paranormal field is that everybody is led to, to believe these myths. And they're myths because most of them are just dramatizations of things that people thought they saw, embellishments of what they yeah. think they saw, um, reactions to in the, in, in, in experiences that they had and have basically been turned into more than they were than they will ever be in truth. And I only base that on things that I've seen with my own two eyes that have not measured up to what my experiences are with the paranormal based on the myths that I've heard and been told. But it kind of, it's like I said, it's like I wrote the book because I heard so many things that were now starting to matriculate down to lay people, like Scott Michaels of Dearly Departed Tours telling me that Benedict Canyon was once Native American burial grounds. And I'm like, says who? Who, who yeah, made that? And then I find out it's attributed to Zach Baggins. And I go, the man's not an anthropologist. He's not an archaeologist. He's not a scientist. If he said something, I would thoroughly check and double check and recheck what it is he said before I would take it with any grain of salt as factual based. Mm -hmm. And I've done the research and I couldn't find anything to corroborate anything because what he said was based upon a thread of truth or let me say a, a story that was told to me by Lisa Williams, who said that there's a Native American on horseback whose remains are interred in the mound of earth underneath my house. And that was it. From that, Mr. Baggins turned the whole area and Benedict Canyon into a freaking cemetery for Native Americans of the Tongva tribe. It wasn't. I couldn't find any research or any evidence to back any of that up when I did my book. And they did some pretty hardcore research to see if there were any graves or any bodies found, and the remains of which were only found once, and that was in, 18, in 1925 from a battle between the early Californians and the Native Americans in 1842. Outside of that, there's nothing recorded. And because the Indian, re, what was it called, the Repatriation Act for Indian remains wasn't enacted until 1976, there would have been some sort of news broken about that in the Beverly Hills newspapers or the LA Times if there would have been remains found because it would have been a great story. But it wouldn't have caused anybody to say, oh, my God, we have to return these. They would have just thrown the bones away. They wouldn't have cared. They weren't so PC in those days, that being politically correct. So, well, see, David, you just answered your own question about why you're on TV because you're dealing with facts. <laughs> Great. That's true. That doesn't make me feel any better. 
That doesn't make <laughs> but the facts are more interesting than the BS. I have 18 no, cameras. You'll see them. Now, uh, David, I wanted to ask yeah. you since you covered. Right well, sorry, uh, you were saying again? No, I so said that's. I have 18 cameras throughout the house. That's actually one of them right there. Oh, well, I being an actor, I'm going to love being at your house. Oh, you're going to love it. I have photos I can show you of Sylvester Stallone visiting with his brother Frank. You're going to go, oh my gosh, Sylvester's like, yeah, that was sly. Are you kidding, David? Look no, at this. No, of course I'm not kidding. Oh, man, everyone's looking at their my walls now. Like a like a Rocky gift shop. <laughs> Look, I have a museum to Jack, and as the old saying goes, Jack Johnson's ghost is in this house. Jack Johnson is a, a tremendously interesting story, but that's that's for another conversation. But you bet your ass it is. <laughs> Jack Johnson is remarkable. Um, now, uh, David, yeah. if you want me asking, um... for you guys, if you haven't seen it yet, um, it's an old movie, Jack. Since you love movies, I'm sure David has seen it. Uh, the Great White Hope. Great movie. Yes. With James L. Jones, James L. Jones and Jane Alexander. <clears throat> yes. Yes. Yep. yes I have. That's that movie. I've seen that movie. So much so. What the, where's Jack? Jack, where are you? Jack, you're here somewhere. I know you're here. Is it there? Jack. Oh, Jack. Go on listening. I'm all ears. No, no for, for our listeners, David has gone for a stroll about his house. <laughs> ah. Oh, look what you guys got. He's showing us a picture. You know what? Yeah. We should, oh, we should take a picture and post these. On our Facebook, I think people would lose their mind. There's Jane. There's there's James. I've actually reached out to oh, James wow. to invite him to the house. Those are lobby cards, right? These are lobby yeah. cards, right? Wow. No, these are really good. I actually have quite. Actually, David, I've got a couple lobby cards from Tarantino. I bet you do. Yeah. Hold on one second. Show me. All right, Corey. Walks away from the mic and then. <laughs> I know. Hey, this is show and tell, guys. So the uh, problem is it's an audio medium. Yeah. Well, you know, the guest is doing it, so who really cares now? Does do uh, now uh, David, now let me show you. So this is uh oh from God. this is from Comic Con twenty fifteen. Oh nice. Yeah. There was actually four of these and unfortunately I can only score one of them because uh oh, wow. I was lucky enough to sneak into Hall H and that hey, was you should, you should be proud of yourself. At least at least you scored. <laughs> you are terrible, Jack. <laughs> oh my goodness! <laughs> you walked right into it. What do you want me yeah, to do? That is terrible. <laughs> the man has no shame. Oh my god! That's terrible. You know, can I? You know what? I want to dump you in the Hudson, like every other New Yorker who gets out of line. David, we gotta explain to him it's the East River. He keeps saying the Hudson. Well, I'm sorry, okay. I'm a dumb Californian. What do I know? We don't have water out here. We got forest fires and pedophiles. You can't get that right. Oh my god. Come on. <laughs> That's the new tagline for the Beverly Hillbillies. Forest fires and pedophiles. Speaking speaking of which, I called Corey last week because I for some reason I was I was channel surfing and who do I see? On an old 1963 episode of the Beverly Hillbillies, is Sharon Tate. Yeah, I know. And he was shocked that I knew that. He was like, "Guess who I just saw Beverly Hillbillies?" Sharon <laughs> Tate in a black wig. Yes, like, yeah, you know it. yeah. Like, I mean, how did he know yeah. that? 
I was. Oh, that's too funny. That is too funny. So, 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 so we'll, we'll talk about who you're going to invite with you to come besides your wives, etc. Because I have a feeling there's some friends of yours that are out here you want to bring with you. But when they find out where you're going for dinner, they go, "We're coming too, aren't we?" No, no. We're, we're, <laughs> this is the show. This is we're going up there to do the other show in L.A. and then we're going to do our show while we're up there. So What's the, Robin, we'll talk Robin, about that off off show, but the other yeah. show ends. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. So Are you kidding? You know, we brought, I have brought Stephen with us. You'd never get rid of him. I have a thousand questions. I'm going to limit it to just one for right now. My question okay. is, my last question is, did you like the movie Once Upon a Time in Hollywood? You're going to hate me because I never saw it. I haven't seen it. Of all people that hasn't seen the movie, the one that is shocking. Bet your bottom dollar, he would have yeah. seen it, and he never saw it. Well, yeah, I wasn't too I'll tell you why. Because you want the answer to the why? It's because when, when, when I got that letter, I heard Sharon Spirit say it's going to be, you know, she says it's going to be disrespectful in a different way than The Haunting of Sharon Tate. And I was like, huh? So what do you mean? I was like, that movie was I terrible. Like, when, when The Haunting of Sharon Tate came out, it was five different point of views of the murders being reenacted in five different ways from different points of view. I understood that that was graphic, etc. But when I heard what Quentin's movie was about and got to in the nitty gritty, and the fact that the last 15 minutes or the last 20 minutes was a, was a left, you know, went sideways as the old saying goes, that's what I understood what she meant by the fact that in a sense it's disrespectful to her memory because of their memory, because... It's a fantasy, just like um, *Inglorious Bastards* was a fantasy. I didn't like *Inglorious Bastards*. I see. I'm his. I love history myself, and I personally love history in the sense that I don't want somebody to take Abraham Lincoln and make him a vampire killer, slayer. Okay, I don't want to see Abraham Lincoln vampire slayer. Well, I don't want to see David, David. You wouldn't. You wouldn't like *Once Upon a Time in Hollywood*, but as a life's experience. You being so close to this situation should see it, just to see it. So when you get here, you're gonna hear, Coy. When you get uh-huh. here, you and I and Jack can talk about my personal connections aside from the movies. Actually, being closer to this shit than you can possibly yeah. put your fingers yeah, on. Yeah, I definitely. Say that. Yeah, the Manson goes from the backseat of my mother's car, going, giving hitchhikers going up to the neighbor's house, who is Jan Barry of Jan and Dean. He lived around the corner. So in 1969, three years out of his major accident on Dead Man's Curve, the girls were coming from the Manson family to come up and visit and hang out at his ranch up the street from my parents' house. Well, wait a second now. The ranch the ranch is in the movie. Not, no, no, not Spawn Ranch. Yeah, not Jan Spawn Barry's Ranch. ranch. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Jan sure. Barry of Jan and Dean had had himself a ranch up in Bel Air where he had horses and chickens and a few goats. And the girls used to go up to the compound to hang out there. And my mom used to give them, give the hitchhikers ride from the bottom of Bellagio Road and, and Church Lane going up. And they would literally, my mom would say, this is my house. Jan's house is around the corner. You girls can walk it. It's not that far and bad. He goes, you've gotten over the worst part of the incline of the drive of the walk up the hills. So, Thank you. This and so later on, after the murders took place, when they were discovered on the evening news, we're watching news. My mom goes, "Oh my God, those are the girls that I gave rides to 
in the back of my car that were going up to Jan Berry's house. Wow. Wow. And, and in 1970, six months later, in July, I woke up at the crack of dawn, go into the kitchen at 7.30 to make breakfast, and I'm eight years old or seven years old at the time, and what do I find? The sliding glass door is open to the backyard, and there's a glint in the, on top of the patio table out, out in the backyard near the swimming pool with a piece of something glinting in the sun. I go out there. It's a Sara Lee coffee cake, chocolate cake, um, coffee cake, pie t- a cake tin with a piece of the cake removed on a plate with a big bite out of the, out of the piece removed. Next to it is a cellophane, half cellophane wrapped Craft American single, which is torn down the middle. The other part is in the cellophane is still there, wrapped, glinting in the sun. I then look to my backyard, and I see in the backyard my dad's trousers, my mom's purse, the um, my mom, my dad's wallet, all strewn across the hedge and the railing. So they creepy crawled my mom and dad's house when I wow. was asleep. At the house there. And they were known for doing that all throughout L.A. Yeah. But the connection was because she'd given them rides to Jan Berry's. They knew her house of any house was that house. Now, uh, David. Oh, wait. uh, Corey, say something. uh, We couldn't get it. Say something. Uh, The only thing I was going to throw out, David, if you end up up watching it, I'll tell you what I liked about it. What I liked is because I'm really into nostalgia. And that's what Quentin really does with this film. It's basically a love letter to the late 60s. Yeah, I, I lived this. So all the police bits. I, I was all there. The- I don't need to watch somebody else's recreation of what I remember vividly. My parents had a, had a, had a storefront on Melrose, apparently a half, not for, more than a block away from where Jay's hair salon was. And I used to walk by it because my parents used to take me there to the store to their House of Renaissance uh, high-end was it brass fixtures for, for bathrooms and stuff. So I would walk by Sebring's, and my godfather, again, knew Sebring, and apparently I might have actually seen Sebring at one of my godfather's parties because my godfather was managing Richard Dawson at the time, who was a pretty solid and hot commodity back in the late 60s. Oh, yeah. So yeah, okay. that's what I said. It's a strange, strange. I, my 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 connections to this are strange beyond repair of how close it was to the family and the friends of of parents, my parents' friends and stuff. It was really, really, like I said, I remember vividly that those heady years. Now, uh, I, uh, yeah. Now, David, given uh, given your connection, um, did, did were you ever approached by Tom O'Neill when he was writing his book Chaos? No, not at all. Not even. Oh. And never takes care of that question. <laughs> well, personally, I don't put a lot of faith in the, in the cottage industry that's come out trying to create a dynamic or a, a platform under which the guise of this, it fits their story. It's nice to have the paint dried on the ground and be able to draw a story out around those, per, those, those significant points of reference. Unfortunately, I think with chaos – Something that Scott Michaels and I discussed, which again, you know, he said, he goes, well, something in chaos that's hardly ever mentioned is the fact that, you know, he said the only thing I took from this book was the fact that he makes makes mention of the back of the railing on the property that was nicked and where, where, where Stephen Parent's car made contact with. 
and this and that. And I was like, well, yeah, but what, what you guys all seem to make, make no sense about is why does it have to, you know, in his thing, he says, student parent was there till the end of the night, blah, 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 blah. Mm-hmm. And his point was that he made this makes this assessment that student parent didn't know the location, so he backed into the railing in a in a in a fast furious rage to get out of there, and then you know text Watts and I said, yeah, there's only one little problem, you know, you assume that this happened in that it didn't have to happen at the end of the night, could have happened at the beginning of the night, and the fact that he made a statement according to text Watson to saying, no, I won't say anything. Tex Watson was brandishing a six-shooter in his hand. It yeah, wasn't like exactly. Tex was walking up with it undisclosed. Tex had it in his hand. It was visible. <laughs> so, you know, some of the ideas that he comes up with saying, you know, this had to happen. It's like, no, it didn't. Stephen Penn could have put his car in reverse, put the car in by accident, drove the car, he impacted upon the railing, put it into drive, started motoring out. As he's driving out, this guy, Tex Watson's walking in the place with three girls and a gun in his hand. Stephen, he's on the same part of the side of the car as he has to be, as he's supposed to be. Linda Kasabian's testimony is exactly what she said happened. And I said, Scott said, well, you know, they're all high on speed. And I said, but Scott, you can't pick and choose what testimony you're going to go with and right. what testimony you're going to dismiss because it conveniently fits your narrative. I said, that's not how it works. You either take all of their testimony and you accept it or you dismiss all of it. But if Linica Sabian's testimony, which has no reason to be a lie, makes any sense, why, again, here's what I say to that, that what's his, you know, the, the author of Chaos. Tom O'Neill. If Tom, if Tom, you're going to say that, that Kasabian said something that's not true, that's the only thing that you got to hang your hat on. You're then predicating a storyline that you're creating in your scenario that Stephen stayed in the backyard the whole time this was happening, got into the car, put the car in reverse by accident, drove madly into it. Had he really been doing anything of what you're saying? The impact on that car and that railing would have been more substantial, and that railing probably would have broken right off and would have fallen down the side of the mountain. He didn't hit it at 25 miles an hour because it wouldn't have lasted and sustained a 25-mile-an-hour impact. He tapped it. He had an old 1960 car. That old Rambler of his, or 58 or whatever it was, Rambler, weighed a ton. I know because I used to drive those behemoths. And it doesn't mean that you hit it at more than five miles an hour, you would have destroyed the post. It would have been ripped off into shreds. He only needed to hit it impacted at five miles an hour to make the dent he made. And that's it. And there are no skid marks where Stephen's car, which would have, again, been again a telltale sign of he sped his car up and went in reverse. But that's not the case. So again, if he, if, if, if Tom sure, O'Neill didn't wanted, Garrison say, Garrison I was, was going to say, didn't the, Garrison say that a parent was there to visit him? He visited right? him and parent left. was visiting him. Right. And then he yeah. left. He left. And again, there's a second person of testimony. The testimony of William Garrison said that he was there for a few minutes and then left. So, right. see, the problem with this cottage industry is, is they're willing to dispose of critical information and, and highlight the information that serves their purposes, but really doesn't do anything to the story except allow them to have another, you know, perspective 
um, as you say, kind of, you know, book or a seminar or a series about what really happened. And to me, the, the story that holds the best truth is the story of of what Helter Skelter was. And for those that don't know it, Charlie was there back in 1969 in March looking for Terry Melcher because he came up there and there's a story of how Charlie was coming up there banging on the front door. He couldn't get an answer. Sharon was in the backyard with a photographer taking photographs. The photographer heard this rustling around the back gate, somebody trying to get in. The gate was locked and he accosted Charlie and said, what are you doing here? He goes, where's Terry? Charlie said, where's Terry? Where's Terry? He was told he doesn't know, he was, no idea who Terry is, upon which Sharon heard the arguing of the two men, came around the back corner and said, no, Terry and Candace moved out last month. I now live here with my husband. So Charles did know that Sharon was there. Exactly. There wasn't any any kind of idea of the, the idea of the, the myth that there was some kind of a party at her house that night. There was never going to be a party at the house there that right. night. Every one of those people in Hollywood that laid claim to saying they missed a boat, dives to bullet by not being there are absolute liars. They're full of it. I called it. I called People Magazine on this article they wrote a few years ago about this woman who laid claim. I said, you better retract that story because it's an absolute falsehood. It's a fraud. There was no party there that night. The idea that people want to lay claim to it and you want to propagate a myth that never could have happened is insane. It's just, it's just, it's just disheartening that you would promote a narrative which paints Sharon Tate's character as a newly, as an up-and-coming mother, first-time mother, as a harlot, and as somebody that had no respect for her baby, because no, she was going to bed early, she wasn't drinking anything, she wasn't smoking any cigarettes, she wasn't having a late-night party. The people that were there, Sharon, Jay, Wojciech, and Abigail, Wojciech and Abigail had been living there for several months, being a caretaker to the house, and were specifically there then, when Sharon was eight and a half months pregnant at Roman Polanski's request, so that if her water broke or she had a problem, they could rush into the hospital versus her having to telephone the hospital and get an ambulance up there. By the time they got up there, he figured it would be taking too long to get there where they lived. Well, David, I got to tell you, the, 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 the scandalous version, be it manufactured or not, is certainly more entertaining and more interesting. This coming from someone who has made a living in, in entertainment. They liked that a whole lot better than she wasn't drinking, she wasn't partying on the night of the of the murder. There was no party plan. That that story sucks compared to they had this big elaborate thing ready to go and then she ends up getting killed. Now, in all fairness, there was no party either way. Because if there had been a party planned, there would have been no party because of what happened. And if there was no party planned, there was no party planned. I think the way the stars aligned, there was no party that night. Right. Well, think about it. They, they'd gone to dinner. Jay lived up the street a mile away up on Easton Drive, and he was Sharon's ex-fiancee, so he just came along for dinner. They got back at about 11.15, 11.30 that night. Sharon and Abigail were both in their nightgowns. And you'd think if there's a 1,000 people that were supposed to be at a party and a 1,000 people don't show up, what are the odds what are they, it's insurmountable odds. And Chuck Norris famously said, you know, Bruce Lee and I were supposed to be at that party. It would have been a whole hell of a lot different had we been there. It's like, yeah, Bruce. I mean, yes, <laughs> I mean, yes, Chuck, it would have been a, a lot different because it wouldn't have been real. And I understand what you're saying, Jack, as far as that's concerned. But I mean, 
51 years later, since we're talking about people whose lives were all cut off when they were in their late 20s, she was eight and a half months pregnant. One of the people there was 18 years old. I mean, I think by now these people are due their pound of, of respect, to say the least. I think you would lose <laughs> your mind watching Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I was actually... I saw the last 15 minutes of the movie is all I've seen. You and know that what? Was that's the part that upset me that, most. That's the worst. That, that, doesn't, do the the pit bull, that pit no, that doesn't do the movie justice. That's the worst of it. Yeah, that's... That's why I said, you know. The worst part of the movie. And Margot doesn't look like Sharon. There's the other thing. Margot does not look like Sharon. The guy that played Polanski was a dead ringer, except Polanski's about a foot shorter than the guy who played him in the movie. I mean, let's face it. I walked in him. I said, oh, my God, he sounds just like him, too. He's got Roman's accent. I said, my God, except he's about a foot and a half taller than Roman. And God, he's amazing. He looks just like Roman in the car. I mean, Roman Polanski. I'll tell you, the guy that they have. Steve McQueen was McQueen in the beginning at the um, Playboy Mansion party. He was spot on for Steve McQueen, whatever his name is. Well, is I I, I, I bet that is, but I didn't think Margot looked like Sharon, and Sharon didn't look like Margot looked like Sharon either. Sharon was like, that doesn't look yeah, anything they, like they don't, have to be, they don't have to be dead ringers. They just have to pull off the acting end of it. Because if you got if you got a name like if if you got Margot Robbie. And you got a name like that going in, that'll put butts in seats. Yeah. But she was on the screen for 12 minutes in the entire 180 minutes. Come on. Honestly, you could have done an old-fashioned cattle call and done much better publicity looking for a dead woman who could act like Sharon Penny. This movie, as Corey is. David's bringing the fashion. David's bringing the passion now. I love it. I know this. I look, I, I know the story that she speaks in the movie for all of like five minutes, and she's okay. seen in the movie acting for a total of twelve. You could have done a whole old-fashioned, good old-fashioned Hollywood cattle call across the country and well, had tons of girls go out there, and that would have given you so much David, more publicity because we found our Sharon Tate. David, she looks like she has the same butt. There you go. <laughs> I've worked as an actor for 40 years. Don't tell me about marketing, babe. David. I have a few ideas that put that Whoopi. show on the Listen. Bubby. Bubby. You got to talk. Say still, Bubby. I'll give you a Bubby. Uh, yeah. He's out talking years, years, right? He's talking yeah. Yiddish. Chutzpah. There you go. Okay. Chutzpah. Zay still Meshugana. There you go. So, okay, Vase. Here's the hard. Give me a break. Oy. Look, I talked to Mel Brooks. I can talk. To, if I talk to God, or the eighty thousand year old man like Mel Brooks used to be, yeah, I think I can tell you that I would have. I will throw this out there. I will throw this out there about the movie. I didn't like the way Bruce Lee was portrayed. I was oh, not yes. a fan of that. Was not a fan of that. Unfortunately, that is true though about Bruce. That Roman was didn't know who had committed the murders, and he actually had a mm. private go look into it and he thought that Bruce Lee was having an affair with Sharon and you know Roman was 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 distraught and didn't know did not know who it was that was involved he was throwing darts at at a blank wall he didn't know who was involved he oh, was yeah, still, no, I'm about, you know, no I'm talking about in the movie in the movie they had Bruce Lee um well don't fighting spoil Brad. it don't, don't worry it's not gonna happen Jack I'm never yeah, saying he's not gonna see it Jack don't mean to disappoint you not saying it. Spoil it for him. They just made Bruce Lee I heard the controversy. Yeah, they made him into a braggart, and it just, uh, you know, and they actually had Brad Pitt beat him, which I was yeah, like, oh. I, 
Look, Brad Pitt's character doesn't exist, nor does Leo DiCaprio's character. They were based upon, gosh darn, what's his face? Um, Burt Reynolds and um, his Hal, stunt double. Hal Needham? Right, exactly. Yeah. Hal Needham, right. That's what it's based upon. Now, Needham might have had words with, with Bruce, because you got to remember, they didn't respect Bruce. There wasn't right. a hell of a lot of respect for Bruce. I could see Needham getting into it, Bruce. Actually, Robin from the Batman TV series, he was roommates with Bruce Lee for a year at Ward. And actually, they did fight at one point, but I think it was like a it was just more of a friendly competition. It wasn't actually like, hey, man, let's go outside. You know, there are, you know, talking crap at a bar, you know. Right. Is that what Burt Ward said that they fought? Yeah. I can't imagine. No. I can't imagine. Yes, because he was in a karate. Imagine. He was in a martial arts as well. Look imagine. it up, Jack. Look it up. And, and it probably was because imagine. he was on the gosh darn show Batman for three years straight, and he had a lot of stuff and stunts to do. And you remember, he had to do – there was stuff that they had to choreograph for him. So he figured – and by the way, I, I'll be frank and honest with you. In the late 60s, Kung Fu was big whoopee. It was huge. Remember, oh, yeah. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar – studied with Bruce Lee and trained yeah. with him and a yeah. lot of other people. But generally speaking, there was contempt. Look, my godfather used to have Japanese house boys that worked at his house that he had, when he had, he used to get them from Japan. They'd come in, they'd work, stay here, go to school and then work to do his, uh, clean the house and stuff. Yeah, so but, yeah. again, I'm talking the late sixties, early seventies. Right. I well, can tell you that there was a lot of people out and you gotta remember, Politically correct or not, there was still some harbingering hatred towards the Japanese in the early six, late 60s, early 70s, going back to World War II. People don't remember. It wasn't all buddy-buddy. It was a lot different then. And that's why I was going to say that that attitude that, the you know, with, was with Needham, Needham might have been that way with Bruce Lee for real. That is something that might have actually been the way it was. And, you know, what's his face? Burt Reynolds wasn't all of everything. You know, Bert was a character. He was a pisser. He was known to be a little bit of a uh, of a rambunctious type of a character, a rabble rouser. He wasn't any choir boy. You remember, he was, you know, Bert Reynolds, and he had yeah. himself an attitude, and he carried it around in Hollywood in those days because he yeah. was a dog. I mean, he was the biggest thing on the planet five years in a row. I mean, Bert Reynolds, Bert Reynolds, the biggest thing, the biggest shadow Burt Reynolds had to get out of was the fact that he constantly was getting confused in the 60s with Marlon Brando. Yeah, but he also had, he was in competition with other people, like you were saying about, um, oh, what's his face? Who are we talking about? Uh, oh, God. We were just talking about him with the Shelby. You know, what's his Steve face? Steve McQueen. Steve McQueen. You got to remember, Burt was Burt, but Steve McQueen was the king of cool in the 60s. Totally. He was bigger totally. than Burt in the sense that Burt was always under the shadow of Steve McQueen. And that's the gosh on truth. And then now, James now, David, was David, big. Now, now, do you know who the Fab Four was in the 60s? You're talking about you mean Dean Martin, no, Frank Sinatra? No, no. The Rat Pack. The Fab oh, Four oh. at the studios was Steve McQueen, Clint Eastwood. Yeah. Okay? Yeah. Roger Moore. Yeah. And Adam West. Wow. That was the four. 
You would have never put those four together. <laughs> not in this, not, but again, Adamus was huge. Adamus yeah. also been in my Godfathers. That's another, yeah. I was just trying, I went to his, I went to the house and some friend of, of my Godfathers was up behind Adam and said, da 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 <laughs> And Adam went and went trying to deck him, the kid. The guy was a singer. Well, and Adam blew his top because this is in the, like the late seven, late sixties, early seventies. Adam couldn't buy a ticket. It was that bad for Adam. So, you know, yeah, that's Adam, what happens with actors. His three buddies, his three buddies were very disappointed that he took the Batman thing because they kind of thought that was beneath their 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 group, that he he was playing Batman with tights, you know, and, and they, they did yeah. not dig that at all. Yeah. Yeah. They, they did the not like was, that at you all. Know. That's what people don't understand. Unless you lived it and know what it was like, you're all talking from a perception 50 years later, and you have no clue because you're you're utilizing your mentality of present day and applying it to then, and it didn't translate. It didn't have any recon. It's not recognizable to the present day society about what was and how it was really, because you have to, the Me Too movement didn't exist. The, you're not going to take a switch to your kid's rear end didn't exist. Corporal punishment was the rule of the day. Kids used to get their parents take their gut. Fathers used to take their leather belts and whip and tan the hide out of their kids' butts. I don't want to hear this about it's like Since I lived it and I saw it firsthand and I was lucky enough to have a memory of all the things that I saw of that era, saying, you know something, I remember each decade saying, Things had changed and how they've changed and looking backwards like, wow, that's an amazing thing where we are now versus then. People don't use that type of mentality when they think of those days, 40, 50, 60 years ago. That doesn't enter their mind. And that's what I mean. I, I, love, see, there, there, I love that you said that because there are some people that criticize me for, I love like the shows of the 60s. So I love Wild Wild West. I spy, you know, there's a lot of those shows that I watch and I hear, oh, well, you know, they didn't have this particular race in there or this actor now, it turns out he's this. And I'm like, I'm just watching it for entertainment and enjoyment. When I watched it back then, I didn't know. I didn't right. know what I didn't know what I know now. And it didn't you know? matter. That's the difference. We place so much emphasis on things that I look back and say, I didn't give a crap if the guy was gay or not. It didn't matter. What I watched was his performance. He wasn't waving a banner saying, look at me, I'm gay, or look at me, I'm LV. It was, yeah. that was there. I didn't care. My mom said, whatever, this is how I was brought up, which I still think holds water now. Whatever goes on behind somebody's closed door is none of your bloody business. And it really doesn't make sense that I need to know what people are doing whether or not they're gay, they're straight, they're bisexual, they're trisexual, or they're asexual. I could care freaking less. If you did the job, that's all I give a rat's ass about. Did you do a good job? That's at the end of the day what counts. In business, in acting, in the reality of the life, we don't all have to put ourselves out there as, I'm wearing a label, I'm this. Who the hell made it okay for everybody to wear a label that we need not share with the world because that's who we are inside and that's what we need to remember. And the key word, as I remember as a kid in the 60s, was respect. 
didn't matter if you were black, you were eight, you were from, from Korea or from China or Japan or the Middle East. You just had common sense of respect. It didn't matter if you like somebody. It didn't matter if, what they thought. You know, as long as you had enough common sense to say, hey, that's their thing. Good for them. That Whatever makes them happy, fine. Doesn't affect me. What do I care? And that's where I kind of like look back and saying, you know, I hated the guys trying the, this, the kid, the, the kid, the stuff that I saw as a kid in the sixties of JF, of RFK getting killed, of Martin Luther King getting killed and Malcolm X being shot of all the different, the, the Vietnam war of the anti gay protests and the anti, you know, just all of it. I went through it in the sixties and I'm watching it happen again. And I'm going, how far haven't we gone in 60 years since, in 50 years, since all the stuff went down in the mid-60s of all the revolts and stuff? Why is it that we haven't learned and figured anything out and we're still tribal and, again, in, in cliques? Why the hell does it matter? Nobody's better than anybody else. At the end of the day, when you're a ghost and you take your skin off and you're just a soul, you're just a soul. That's it. There's nothing more, nothing less. Black, white, or doesn't matter. Man, woman, doesn't make a bit of difference. It's all the same. You know what? I think that is a great place for us to leave it. I can't even add anything else to what you just said. Okay. Right. So we're going to let David go so Robin can call him and get things get things set up. Yeah, give us, give us so about David, five minutes. David, you get a all right, I'm off. I'm hanging up now. Fine. Goodbye, all. Thank you for having Bye, me on. David. I'll call you shortly. All right, David. All right. And you could get a hold of us on Facebook, JV to the Pros. We're on Stitcher and iTunes. And um, you could. iHeart. iHeart Radio, right? You and could, Spotify. Um, Spotify. Look at him go. And if you want yeah. to send comments or compliments. You can email us at jvtothepros at gmail.com. And we're also on Instagram, jvtothepros. That's right. So that's the whole package. I'm Jack Vecchio, and there's my partner, Corey, the Iron Man, Ramsey, who has still not missed a show. It's all due to the CBD, baby. <laughs> there you go. RBGCBD.com. Go for it. You Paco. know it. And so, um, for job, Paco, man. the last man standing, of course. I'm sorry, Jack. And uh, Robin with a lie. And the Queen of Queens, our other producer, Miss Karen, the Queen of Queens. Get him the hell out of here. I'm Jack Vecchio right. with my partner, Corey Ramsey, and we are signing off. Get him out of here. Get out. Get him out of here.
All right. Good job. Hey, uh, Corey, you still you still have the um, information on Fort Hood, right? You know, another body was found. Oh, yeah. 